Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. It's January 5th. This is On The Grid, episode 25. This week, we talk about what lessons we can learn about technology and design from a 15-year-old. We also ask the question, are designers crazy? We wrap things up talking about the woe business model. This is On The Grid. Happy New Year! Happy New Year, gentlemen. Happy New Happy Year, New everybody. Year. Happy New Year, Internet. Did you have a good one? Oh, so good. I hope the Internet had a good Happy New Year, too. So the, the article I want to talk about this week was actually one from before the end of the new year. It got sort of stuck in between our end of the year special and our previous episode, and so we didn't get to talk about it. But I think it's really interesting. Uh, the piece is called 10th Grade Tech Trends, and it's written by Josh Miller, who is one of the gentlemen behind Branch. And he basically talks about how over the holiday break, he went home and talked to his 15-year-old sister because she previously had told him before Snapchat sort of took off and became really popular that Snapchat was going to be the next big thing. He was like, oh, whatever you say, silly little 15-year-old sister doesn't know something about technology. You know, I'll take care of the, of the technology things. You just stick with whatever you do. And then, of course, she was right. Snapchat did take off. So he learned his lesson, went home and sort of asked her a bunch of questions about some of the existing social networks and tried to figure out what the next big thing was going to be. And the result of the conversation was really interesting. Uh, she and her friends, as 15-year-olds, had some very interesting perspectives on some of the social networks that we use every day. So I wanted to ask you guys, have you ever had a young person in your life that makes prodigious predictions about where technology is headed and or is always ahead of the curve? Never. <laughs> I actually think I'm, I'm turning – I used to be that person, and now I'm turning into the old man. So yeah. I don't – I don't have – I have no children, and I don't have any uh, you have no children, children in proximity. I don't have these predictors nearby. I, I guess I should get one. Though. You should get some children. It's it's really important <laughs> for your career. Where, where can you pick those up? Well, we'll talk about that after the show. Like free I don't at wanna... the park or something. Yeah. I don't know. No, I have a so I have a huge family, and among my huge family, there are many nieces and nephews and cousins. And I have one younger cousin who I guess he's seventeen ish now, a little older than this than this guy's sister. And uh, he actually told me about Snapchat before before I read about it online, before it was on TechCrunch, and uh, it seemed like the silliest, stupidest thing to me. But I, I do think there's something to this fact that young people seem to be ahead of the trends. And I think it's largely because they're more flexible and more prone to trying new things and to experimenting and exploring than all of us old crotchety people are. We're sort of stuck in our ways. And it's also because children can afford to play more than adults can afford to play. So when mm -hmm. some Snapchat thing comes out, you know, you and I are like, well, what is what values does this provide me? You know, what I need this in my life? What problem is it solving? And kids are just like, ah, this is fun. I'm just going to use it. And the result is that they actually discover through that experimentation and through just this playing that there are useful applications of this tool, of this product that were not necessarily laid out for them. So I, I think there's something to the fact that young people, like, and, and that the age of young people, the young people in air quotes here, is getting much and much younger as, you know, now there's like elementary school kids have iPod touches because they want to use apps and technology is getting adopted by younger and younger audiences and they're just more and more ahead of the curve, I think. I think that's always going to be true. And the other thing that you, we didn't bring up is that, you know, if if these apps are meant for that demographic, then, of course, that demographic is going to know a little bit more about it than we will. I mm -hmm. mean, Snapchat is popular amongst kids that age, so why wouldn't they be able to better predict what, what's going to happen? But I thought the more interesting piece of the article was not so much that young people 
know more about what's cool than old people, but that they frame things in a much different way than we would imagine. The, yes. the framing of Tumblr or the framing of Instagram was more interesting because they, they kind of saw them as the, the one feature that was useful to them as like, for example, they mentioned that Tumblr was a photo sharing service or that was the way that this 10th grader saw Tumblr. And oh. when in reality it is a blogging platform and it's, you know, it's, it's a simplified blogging platform, but it's pretty powerful. But at the end of the day, if they, if you don't use it for anything but photos, why would you see it as anything but a photo service? And that's the key feature. And Great. and not only that, the biggest takeaway was that Tumblr was for middle schoolers. And that <laughs> actually like that blew my mind because I know that there's plenty of that other stuff on Tumblr that middle schoolers, much less like anybody else of that age, should be looking at. Thinking about that and between that and Twitter, those are the two things that really shocked me because I was like, wow, those are the two things that I really use day to day. And kids in high school think that both of them are like, you know, useless to them. Well, it's funny that Twitter was like for old people. She was like, I know you and all your friends like to share links on Twitter and read things on the Internet, but that's not fun. We don't do that, Uh, which is funny (laughs) because, you know, from my perspective, Twitter is like the fun thing in my life. Like email sucks. It's a chore. And, you know, my work is my work. But Twitter is just like fun conversation with cool people. But to her, it's like old people doing boring stuff. (laughs) Well, I think it I think the difference is that. If you're that age, aren't you trying, you're kind of trying to figure out the people around you. And at a certain point, you figured it out enough. Now you're trying to figure out the world around you. I think that's kind of the difference between looking at pictures of your friends versus trying to trying to find links to interesting articles about things. I think as as you get older, you get a little bit more comfortable with the way you're projecting yourself to other people and try to focus on slightly different things. Yeah. And Josh talked about that, how the, the goal of many middle schoolers is identity. It's you're going through puberty, you're going through a weird time in your your growth as a person and so a lot of your capital your emotional capital is going to be spent trying to determine your identity and things like tumblr help you do that because you can follow tumblers that you aspire to be like and show images that are the life you want to live and that's something that's very compelling to somebody of that of that time in their life whereas when you get older and you sort of know what you want to be or how you want to live your life that's maybe not what you want to do anymore now you want to seek out information or articles or network uh, the other part that we haven't even talked about was the Facebook part, too. She had gone on about how Facebook isn't really what they use a lot, uh, saying that it's addicting. She bemoaned, uh, you end up getting lost in it, and I don't like that. And what's funny is that like that's the exact same mentality that you have, Andy, that you just don't like it because it's this big internet black hole. And uh, not only that, but... Uh, not using the messenger because you know there's there's these other platforms to talk through and that is really uh that blows my mind a little bit because a lot of people our age end up like getting lost in facebook i think it's because they're trying to escape some other part of life but to think that kids uh high schoolers middle schoolers and whatever don't like facebook because it actually wastes time is very interesting i think that the way these kids are growing up is also a really important part of this like Kids, maybe not as old as this girl who is, you know, 10 years old or whatever in this piece, 15 years old, but younger kids are growing up with every part of their memory has Facebook in it. Like Facebook has been a fixture of their life since before they can remember. And for those people, it's very much like an institutional thing. It it was not a new thing at any point. It was never, you know, this new feature, a new service. It's just a part of life. And I think that's a lot of the ways in which like people like us interpret email. Like ever since I've had the internet, I've had email. I didn't grow up with the internet. It wasn't a part of my life until I was probably in fifth or sixth grade. But 
for that reason, like I don't get as excited by email as somebody who is older. My grandparents still love email. I still think it's the most amazing thing in the whole world. I still get chain letters with pictures of sand castles <clears throat> or, you know, ice sculptures in it because that's still the thing that they are compelled by because when it came about, that was like new and interesting. And hmm. I wonder if Facebook being that it got <clears throat> so, so popular and it does have this incredibly huge mass appeal uh, is just going to be boring to people that grew up with it. They're just like, oh, yeah, that's that's an understood thing that I know exists in the world and fills its place, but it's never going to be compelling to them. I think interesting place to sort of manifest itself is looking at Snapchat versus Poke, which is the, the app that Facebook came out with that mirrors almost exactly not just the functionality, but the interface of Snapchat. You would think as a tech company, especially a small to medium-sized tech company, which Snapchat is, it's fairly new, that Facebook coming into your market and essentially going toe to toe with you would be a nightmare. Like that's like your worst. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you is the biggest website slash tech company out there decides they're going to take you on. But in reality, I think that a lot of Snapchat's success is because it's it's not Facebook. It's a new thing. And Facebook, as many as many little satellite apps as it puts out, can never really get away from the strength of their central brand. Everything's still going to be Facebook, and it's still going to be to this little girl boring and a big black hole of distraction and not exciting not interesting so i think in that sense there's actually a lot of opportunity for smaller apps to sort of start taking pieces away from what facebook can do by offering an alternative i don't know i i see it as kind of analogous to what microsoft went through and, and are continuing to go through is getting so big being so good at a couple of things that it's kind of hard to break away from from the brand of microsoft I I, th- I do think Facebook is heading in that direction. I don't, I don't know. It's a it's it being a victim of your own success to a degree. Well, it's not even that. Uh, Microsoft has been around for so long that when we were teenagers, they were the old computer company, and Apple was uh, seemingly the the new and hip thing. I think it was just because of advertising and and whatnot. But it was that facade that uh, this monolith had stood there. Everybody uses uh, the products from this monolith, thus you should too, and it's going to be awesome. But us as teenagers saying, well, I, you know, I don't want to use that, or like, oh, it's the old company stuff. Like, I feel like that could be the sort of mentality that these you know, 10 or 15-year-old kids have, is that, oh, this is the old established company. I, I want to do something that's new, that's not a part of the general fold, that like, you know, something my mother and my father uses. Actually, that that might be the key is just getting away from what your parents are doing. It's yeah. um, as Facebook kind of moved into being everything for everybody. It it becomes difficult to find your niche in, in in such a big network. But I thought I thought the article mentioned something interesting too when it said that because Facebook is kind of seen as this background for for everything else, the Messenger app is very useful because everybody just has it and it could make a move for some of the market that Gmail has or something when when you have kids growing up just thinking of as Facebook is the way to message your friends. There's no other alternative. Yeah. Of all the yeah. things in this piece, the most staggering thing to me was that she never checks her email. She didn't know her email password when she got an email from somebody. She just it's not a part of her life at all. Because I mean for me, email is like the foundation. It's like of course everyone has email. We all email each other. That's how that's like the common ground we all have on the internet. But Yes. For these young people coming up, that's just not the case. And until they get to college and they're forced to have an email address to, you know, participate in classes and, you know, get their materials. When And when that happens, all the kids are going to be like, oh, man, college is just so behind with this email shit. Why can't they just have a whatever account to send things out? But 
that that was one of the most interesting things to me is how quickly something that seems so foundational and such an important infrastructure like email could be could be totally replaced if you could just get schools to use some other system to share stuff with their students that didn't involve email addresses a whole generation it seems for the most part would not use their email when it got to the part of talking about email and talking to somebody directly email wasn't even an option neither was instant messaging most times it was through texting and that is something that I, I rarely give out my number because I don't want a bunch of people texting me all the time. So it's just it's such a completely different mentality that like, oh, my phone number, whatever, just like, you know, we'll chat, whatever, it'll be fine. So I don't know. Maybe that's just the old fart in me. It is the old fart in you. You're old. We're all old. Yeah. I mean, not really. It's just you get used to the <laughs> no, things. No, no, we are to. we are old. I mean, we just talked about how most <laughs> of us enjoyed spending New Year's uh, indoors, not going to any crazy parties. I think we're old now. I think that's how it happened. Like, I, I, I want to return a little bit to her Facebook as a black hole distraction thing. I think it really tastefully touches on what is really my biggest issue with not just Facebook, but a lot of these ad-supported social sites, which is that the entire goal of a website that is ad-supported like that is just to keep you on the page, on the site, going deeper and deeper and deeper for as much time as possible. The more they can get your eyeballs on an ad for speed stick or something, the more they, money they can make, which to me is like the exact opposite, the antithesis of everything I want the internet to be, which is something that enhances your real life. You know, I wanted to make tools that you can visit, use quickly, that do the thing you wanted to do immediately, that then allow you to go continue with your life and do something else, you know, off screen. And that's the way she talked about it, I think is really interesting that I think this generation is sort of coming up with maybe that sort of baked into them. Like they, they understand that the internet is always there. They take it for granted, like we maybe don't. And for that reason, there is this sort of like inherent trying to get off screen that I think a lot of people in our generation don't have. I mean, there's so many, you can find so many blog posts and so many people that are like, I'm taking a year off of Twitter and I'm taking a year off of the internet and doing all this very conscious, you know, unplugging because mm -hmm. of how much our lives have been dominated by the web. And I think that if I, in a perfect world, maybe this generation will just take it completely for granted and for that reason, not be so ingrained in it and understand that it's just a, a puzzle piece to a much more fulfilling outside life. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I appreciate the article. It's just that um, I, I feel a little bit too curmudgeonly sometimes talking about it because I don't I don't think any of it is good or bad. Like I think th those things are irrelevant to the conversation. It's just more interesting to, to kind of watch it happen. I don't know if I have an answer for what it's, what it's going to be and, and whether something is right or wrong. But I, I do think it's interesting how you, the way you frame it as the kind of the piece, the, the one piece of your life that is taken for granted. And there are many other pieces to your life that we take for granted. It just happens to be one because you grew up with it. Hmm. I think that, I think that will be it. And I think that actually will be a more successful internet rather than kind of seeing it as uh, an ever present tool in our lives its background so the next article we wanted to talk about this week was from terrence eden's blog and the title of the post was our designers crazy and the he the gist of it is kind of i understand that he says that he understands the need for design and kind of what it is and that it's not just a veneer uh but then goes into the kind of the nitty-gritty details of jack grottenzinger's post about scaling down images and optimization for one-time and two-time comp versions of an iP uh, iPhone app. I mean, really just like really nerdy stuff that nobody who isn't a designer would care about at all, making sure that the corners of a button are perfect when scaled down or scaled up. 
and then goes on to ask the question, are our designers crazy? Like, no one's ever going to notice this. Is it just me? And I, th- I think it, it probably hit home for all of us because I think this is a struggle we talk about all the time of the difference between trying to see the big picture and what design is and what it really means versus getting down to the little details that really only we care about. But in, in my mind, if we don't care about them, who will? Mm-hmm. But it was that <laughs> I know Dan always got very angry about this post and I, I haven't <laughs> talked to him about it. <laughs> what got him so angry? So Dan... Why, why so angry? Oh, my God. My blood pressure rised so sharply when I started reading this. I think it's just because I I know the mentality because I'm pretty sure the guy who had written this is like a product manager, product owner. So I interact with these folks literally every day. So I, I know the mentality, but I think it's just it, it was something that I've noticed that isn't talked about. So when somebody written it, it just made me more angry and it's not so much the fact that they don't i don't think the author really understands what's going on i think they just don't know how to interpret it and then bring it into the fold i guess this is me trying to be as nice and non-angry as possible um nah fuck that let's incite some conversation (laughs) all right let's put a goddamn flag in the ground all right product owners and managers have a stereotype of not understanding what the fuck is going on other than there's something that needs to be done and it's not done yet. They're a lot like project managers. So a lot of them understand development a lot better than they will design. So when there's a a development need or something that needs to be taken care of, a lot of times there'll be, you know, like tasks made and estimates and all the other nonsense and it'll be put into the plan. But if there's a design task that uh, involves something like 1x images or assets or whatever else they say oh that's nice and that's pretty uh we're not going to do it because it's a waste of everybody's time okay well so you said something interesting there and you said what you said was product managers have a stereotype of not knowing what the fuck's going on when it comes to design yeah and i think it's important to note that the role of a product manager as i understand it their only job is to know exactly what the fuck's going on with everything at all times their their whole the whole point is to play like connective tissue between a design team and development team and maybe engineering and analytics and all these different parts of a, a large company mm-hmm. when it's not just two or three people building a thing. Yes. So I think that most product managers would strive to know what's going on even in the little niche details of a design product because they have to know sort of they have to have a good ten thousand foot view of everything that's happening. Yeah. So. For for me, what's really what this piece is really about is not so much. I mean, the the, art, the author mentions the fact that he knows that design is more than just aesthetics, which is great. So for me, it's not so much about the the higher level thinking versus the aesthetics. It's more about the idea of pragmatism and the idea of craft. And mm-hmm. these are some these are two things that sort of flip flop a lot back and forth. And you look at things like dribble, and that's like the craft to the eleventh degree of design, and people just showing off all the little tiny details they could do. And then you look at, you know, less sexy, like practical designers in the real world. And the reality is that, yes, you know, the 1X graphics have to get out the door. And so it's, I guess my question to you, Dan, is that if you knew from the analytics team at this at X big company mm-hmm. that taking the time to make all of the 1X graphics pixel perfect was not at all going to affect user engagement or the bottom line, do you still think it's really important to do that kind of thing? This is what it boils down to. I think that it's a problem with two different parties. One is the product owner slash manager. Then one is the designer. 
because the project manager owner, if they get feedback from analytics or from another group or just they, they have good research available to say that the 1x graphics don't matter, then yeah, it's not something that has to ship immediately. But that's where I think there's miscommunication is that a lot of times product folks will say, oh, well, it's not necessary, so let's just not bother with it. There's other things that we can do. If you want to do it on your free time, that's great, but just, you know, just it's not a big deal. Shoo it off. And you know, I think that's one end. The other end is that designers have a really hard time spending the time show the, the valid worth of what they're doing. So if it's 1x graphics, if it's very important, if it ends up making things more legible or more clickable or anything like that, and they know that without having the analytics for that particular project, they have to be able to validate that with all the other teams and say, like, you know, that we need to do this because of X, Y, and Z. So I feel like it's both parties not actually communicating as best as they can. Yeah, so here's my thing. You know, I think that the reason that I advocate for craft and design many times is that not everything is measurable. You can measure someone's time on a page. You can measure how many people click on a button. You can measure a lot of these very quantitative things, but you can't measure the delight in a user when they experience an interface. You can't measure a lot of the things that craft is really responsible for. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, that is one reason that I do advocate oftentimes for spending a lot of time on the specifics of some typography or spending a lot of the time on getting a color just right or doing some pixel perfect graphics for something like this example in this article. Uh, but that is me as a designer and me as a designer in my craft. And the reality is that I think when you're working in a bigger system, like like a big company, mm-hmm. and you do have a product manager that's sort of helping figure out what you should be spending your time on, I think one of the reasons that we have that role is because you as a designer can't understand all of the technical complexities, can't understand necessarily the entire business model. It's, not, it's, not, it's too many balls for you to keep in your head at all times. Yep. And so the reason you have that product manager is to say, hey, don't sweat that. That's not super important. And I think there's a, there's a lot of value to that. I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here in some ways to oh, yeah. push, the, push the conversation along. But I, I also do really think that that's a valuable thing in that I'm sure if you were to sit down and do the math and say, OK, we have this designer and, you know, their salary is $50 an hour. and It's going to take them, you know, five hours a day to do these pixel perfect graphics. And if we then go back and look at how much money those pixel perfect graphics made to the business, it is not $500. It doesn't make business sense. And not everything, in fact, I think very few things you can put in such black and white terms and so easily convert to some sort of monetary gain. But I I oftentimes, I have been known on the internet to advocate for the idea that not all designers have to learn to code to design things for the screen, which I still stand by more or less. But I do think that learning a little bit of engineering, learning a little bit of programming is one of the best ways for you as a designer to better understand the compromises of designing a product. I mean, we talk about design being a higher level thing all the time, and I believe that to my core, but if you're not understanding all of the challenges associated with the higher level thinking, then you're sort of sitting in a magical wonderland full of clouds and magical unicorns and beziers, and you're just, you know, making decisions that are not necessarily completely informed. And I think that that to me is the nerve that this article struck more so than, I don't even think the example he gave was any good, honestly. Uh, there's a lot of pragmatic problems with the example he gave. But but the the court is there, which is that if you're a designer and you do want to be designing on a higher level and talking about feature set and functionality and the entire product path, then you need to have 
some business sense. You need to have some idea of how things are built engineering wise. Whether you can do it or not is one question. You need to know what, what it takes and the effort that's involved. And you need to be able to sort of weigh all of these things when making all of your decisions, not simply say, I'm a designer. It's most important. Everything look great. I'm going to do that. Two things that you touched on that uh, really underscore, I guess, my thoughts on this, that one, the product owner having to see all the different senses, you know, things from development, things from product, things from design, because those are the three main facets for any of these uh, larger projects. And that the mentality is often data driven, because if it's measurable, then it's predictable. And if it's predictable, then there is a more clear path that they can go down to be able to make a more effective product. And it works and it works very well. I think that it, yeah, the Google blue mentality where engineers say, okay, let's test these many blues, whichever one gets the most retention is the most effective. Thus it is the perfect blue. And, and we as designers know that that's not the case. There isn't a blue that's going to work across the internet. Uh, so there's the data driven part, which I think is still not very well communicated. I think the other part is that I agree that the example seems very awkward because if the discussion is about 1x graphics, what immediately goes through my mind is that what is the designer not accomplishing that is so important that needs to be done right now? Because technically the, uh, you know, the product person, they, they aren't there to keep the schedule for the designers. The design team carries their own. So uh, I guess it just turns into that discussion like what was so important that the 1x graphics shouldn't be done. And I think your example of the Google Blues and for people that have not heard that before. It's a sort of anecdote, whether apocryphal or mm -hmm. not, that you know Google would A/B test very slightly different shades of blue for buttons, and then use that sort of data to determine which color blue the button should be, which is something designers often point to as sort of misguided, data-driven decision making. And I think that to sort of take that same example and say, if you are a designer and you're managing that product, you should be in the position to say, you know what, we should test yeah. things, but other things we should test, this blue is probably not one of them. We can probably better spend our time and assets testing some other aspect of this interaction to figure out how we can increase retention rates. And But that requires some knowledge of you know, what testing is like, how useful A-B test results are, and some understanding of the time it takes to set up an A-B test or something like, like a button. So I don't think that the idea of A-B testing a button is not inherently wrong. It's just misguided in that... I'm sure that the time spent on A-B testing the color of that button could be much better spent on some more higher level part of the interaction or part of the design. The, the thing that hasn't been said yet is that question of our designers crazy, you could pop any profession in there and I think you could make a very similar argument about anything. I mean, I think we have like this very narrow focus because we are designers, but we're very specifically talking about like app designers uh, in mm -hmm. this conversation and a, a team that develops applications for digital or develops digital products. But there's something to be said for if you, if you decide to pick any profession out of a hat and then not notice some of the things that they're trying to do well, you could write the same post. Just you could just do a Mad Libs. Are plumbers of, crazy? Of this. Look how right. much they care about caulk. Does the caulk really matter? <laughs> you just put it in the, in the hey, gap there, and it there's works. Good caulk, there's good caulk and there's bad caulk. I could say that from experience. <laughs> uh, but I think, I mean, part of the part of this is that you're always going to see somebody else who's very focused on something is a little bit strange because, like, for example, if you're the product manager, you, you're meant to have this very horizontal idea of everything and everybody in everybody doing this specific task should have a very vertical idea of something. And, and almost by that definition, you can't understand every single thing they're doing. So when you point to the one thing you don't understand, 
that seems crazy. Yeah. It, 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 it seems like a very easily answered question that no, and also or you're yes. paying this person to be your crazy person for you. You want that in them, I would hope, because otherwise you could get a kind of generalist to do a mediocre job at everything. Yeah. I think part of what we we have to do is just do it anyway and maybe maybe to a degree ignore the the people that don't totally understand it because you're doing it because it's, you want it to be the best it can be. You just do it anyway and people sometimes don't notice. And it's, it's important to note too that a lot of the things we talk about being the role of a designer in the modern age are very often in large companies actually the role of a product manager. We talk about design, I think, from a, a singular perspective in that we are usually talking about smaller products and I'm one person designing a thing and part of designing a thing is taking into account all these considerations. I mean, you get to a product as big as Facebook or as big as any of the giant websites out there or big apps, there's simply too many people involved for there to be one person sitting down sort of doing all of that, which is why the product manager role comes about. And I, I, so I think that it, a lot of this is a huge, huge overlap here in in from the way we view design in a product manager and in a designer, except that when you're at a big company like that, you probably spend a lot more of your time actually deciding how things look instead of just deciding how they work because there's other people who make those decisions for you. And well, I think there also too to to play the devil's advocate to Dan's role too. There there does have to be the person to cut you off every once in a while and say, you know, stop focusing on this. We got has to go. No, no, that you could that's, dwell forever. You could dwell forever. That's yes, ex uh, extremely can. true. From an experience of us working on a project very recently, um, you know, we have the engineers, we have the the product manager, the product product owner, and then we have the design team. And we decided together because we communicate often that there are certain things that we ship with on certain certain feature releases, and design ends up doing whatever we have to do for that feature release. But we also try to figure out what else we can optimize in that time. I mean, and that's what it comes down to. You know, you could. We as designers could sit around and make everything look a little better and feel a little better and have all, all the animations and the interactions just be that much better forever. There's there's no end to that. There's no you've created the ideal, the paradigm interaction. You never get there. So the reality is you have to weigh all of that effort versus the effort of having a lot of users. And if you're thinking about design from a higher level, having more people involved and touching more people's lives is probably more important than having every little thing be perfect looking and be t t exactly to the pixel. And so I, I, th I think it's what we're, we're sort of getting at here. Yeah, I will say that like this example, I said it before, I'll say it again. I don't think it's the greatest example in the world because uh, when it comes to things like graphics, uh, especially for applications, like we have totally streamlined that process as smoothly as possible. So like when I update assets, they go directly into GitHub. So the next time that the thing is built, it has the new assets. So I feel like that is just a really bad example because in my mind, I'm like, oh, well, if it's 1x assets, they don't have to worry about a release. They'll just add in new things as they go to optimize and they don't have to talk to anybody or get any extra help or anything. If they're just replacing things to make them look better, what's the difference? You know, I don't know. It just, it's just trying to find the balance of, of uh, doing a good enough job that you can ship it, but not, not, being, not feeling the need to be so efficient that you actually put out a shitty product. I, I, I don't, yeah. Well, I, I do think there's actually a really important takeaway here for especially like maybe students or people that are just sort of getting into design, which is that, Dan, you have a very good perspective on this. And we know you think about design in a very top level critical way. Mm -hmm. But it should be noted that it's very easy as a designer to just get angry at this post and say this person doesn't <laughs> understand anything. They don't understand my job or how important I am. Yeah. Uh, when in reality, there is a really important takeaway, which is that if you are designing at a big company where you do a product manager, it is important to understand their role and how important the decisions they make 
really are to your design and how integrated that is and not assume that you have the right answer all the time for every single thing because you don't have sort of all the perspective on the problem that a product manager might have. Um, so drop the ego, people. And to build on top of that, I, I think the biggest takeaway from somebody who actually does this every day is that w we don't have this problem like we did at one point, but it was just through communication and getting an understanding of like what Matt said of the horizontal versus the vertical of if there's a call that an engineer or designer says says that they have to do, it might not be immediate, but it, need, it needs to get done. It has to be communicated effectively that it's something that should get done and let's find the time to do it rather than just pass it off as another thing. So I think the biggest part is just miscommunication is probably the worst thing in the world. And I do think that if you're I think a huge part of just being a working designer is being able to explain your ideas or, or what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do it, it might not actually be that valuable. If you really can't come up with a solid explanation as to why you want to do what you want to do, it, it might be they might the other person might be correct. Yeah, I think I sometimes try to gauge myself in in that exactly. Like if I'm doing a really poor job explaining it and I can't come up with a better way, mm -hmm. I might need to drop that idea because it's maybe not so great. And if your reason for doing it is because it looks good, that's almost never a viable answer to that question. I, I, I think we sort of touched on this before, but doing something for its beauty, that's art. You know, go do art if you want to do art. But if you want to do design, you know, make sure everything works and is functional and has a level of, you know, inherent beauty to it. But that should not be prime directive, you know. I don't know. It's I, I don't know if it's Saturday morning or we talked about everything there is to talk about. I, this week didn't seem like a uh, no, nothing jumped out this week. There's no there's no flat line thing or UC logo. I'm still I'm still dwelling on the UC logo to be honest. Yeah, you are dwelling over there, aren't you? <laughs> I am. I am. I think that's gonna. <laughs> You've been discussing it all week with them too. I know. So. I think it's gonna change design forever, though. I really. I think there's something. Oh, big huge. statement. I don't know. Oh. How do you? I, I think this is Matt, one big. Matt, what? This is what you need. You need to write a blog post. You need to post it onto the subreddit. And then we need to upvote the shit out of it to make it another episode. Another UC episode? I don't know if I want to do another UC episode, but I don't know how it doesn't change how identity design works at least a bit. It's got to change something. Just because of all the weigh-in that people have from the internet now? You think that that's yeah. going to change the whole process? I don't know. It, it seems like it has to because how, how can that be ignored forever? Well, does it have to change the process of identity design or does it have to change the perceptions of identity design to decision makers like CEOs and presidents of universities? Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I think I think a big problem is how I feel like if, if the next identity that I do design, I, I want to make it so clear that we're not showcasing the logo. Like this is not the announcement is not that we have a new logo. We're not talking about it. We're talking about what's actually changing about you. We're not talking yeah. about the fact that there's a new logo here. Exactly. That will come. But uh, it's just as design gets more and more prominent in the world, we're focusing too much on on the perceived parts of design that are important. And they're they're not nearly – it's either they're not nearly as important as they're being made out to be or mm -hmm. this didn't need to happen. And that, you know that's I mean? one of my biggest – I've, I have a big document. I really want to teach someday. I'm not sure we already talked about that, but I really want to teach at the university level design someday. So I have a big document full of mm -hmm. potential classes and, and lesson plans. And one of the big projects I want to do is, you know, the same old rebranding project that everyone does with the difference being a very important one that you have to choose a company that is desperately in need of a rebrand, not because their logo is ugly or because their, 
you know, typesetting is an aerial or some stupid shit like that. But because that business has gone through a tremendous change recently or because of the socio-political climate, they have to completely change their perceptions and their offerings in the world to stay relevant. And that is, is mm-hmm. in fact, the rebranding project, not, you know, pick your favorite thing and make a new logo for it because it's your favorite, you know, makeup company or whatever. I mean, you know, maybe it'll change things for the better because people will realize that if we change the logo, that is perceived huge change in who we are. And mm-hmm. we'll either decide to not do it or we'll actually make a big change in who we are. This is this is a part of a bigger whole. Yeah. And that was my whole thing with like the Gap rebrand. I remember the, you know, the Gap came with their new logo and I was like, what is the Gap changing? Like, in what way is the Gap clothing or fashion or like, how is that company changing that they needed a new mark? Like, why wasn't the old one working anymore? Which yeah. I think is a question they probably didn't ask themselves enough. So, And I, I do wonder what what the solution will be eventually to changing a thing that people love when it does have to change. Eventually, all things will have to change. What do you, what do, you do? Except for, for Coca-Cola. No, the, the idea of a timeless brand is really interesting to me just because I, I do think it's really difficult to have something that just constantly stays relevant. Coca-Cola is going to go away once everybody has diabetes. Once everyone has diabetes, you got to change the brand of Coca-Cola. you got to change your product offering because we're all just going to die. I'm thinking about all the big things this weekend. I've been working on a big identity project coming up at work. So, um, you know, you know what, Matt? I feel your pain because ever since I had this Philly sandwich yesterday, I have not stopped thinking about it. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Yeah, well, Matt's Matt's all caught up on the UC logo, and I'm all caught up in the fact that you had a Philly sandwich in San Francisco and think it was good. That's that's a sin. So uh, the last post for us today is Nevin Morgan talking about the Woe business model. Uh, The story behind it is that him and his wife went and saw a movie on Christmas Day and they get into the theater and every, you know, all their experiences leading up to the theater have been very lovely. The staff has been very courteous and everything has been clean and and anything that you would expect from a good established establishment. Uh, They go to sit and the first thing that anybody expects is a bunch of advertisements. Um, and, and that's not the case. The big wool model for them is that when the screen turns on and things start playing, it's the movie. So it, it's this idea that uh, everybody in the, the theater audibly gasped uh, at the idea <laughs> that, uh, oh, my God, they're actually playing the movie when they start this thing. And uh, that as a business model very closely ties to things that we talk about with like Facebook, where it relies on advertising to be able to function. But these guys are taking an alternative route of saying, you came here to see a movie. You're paying us to be able to see the movie. Here's the movie. And it just, yeah, yeah. It's, it just reminds me of how beaten down we are. We're so <laughs> beaten down by media companies. It's ridiculous. We just, when, when we get to see a movie and it's actually the movie, we are, we are awestruck. Yeah. But it, I, I can totally goodness. imagine that. Like I can place myself yes. in that theater and it would be staggering just to have like the lights be on as soon as they go off. Poof, Tarantino's in your face. Like that, yeah. that would be impressive. And I, the, the, like the movie theater model is especially bothersome to me because it's like I'm paying for this movie and you're still going to subsidize the cost with advertising. Like I'm already – I gave you the money. I gave you my greens uh-huh. and you're supposed to give me the movie. And I give you the greens, but instead you give me like the Regal 20 and some, <laughs> you know, some previews for 30 movies that I might want to see, but I hate seeing previews. And then I finally get to get to the movie. And it, it, I think his, his point is just my takeaway from it was just that, you know, simplicity in your business model is, is a valuable thing. And the very simple experience of I give you the money, mm-hmm. you give me the movie is extremely powerful. And I think we're actually going to 
we'll probably see more and more backlash to stuff like this as we're getting more used to business models being very upfront. I mean, if you sign up for an app, it will tell you here are the pricing plans and here are what you get and what you do not get. And usually one of the very key thing that a lot of people do is you, you don't pay us, you will see ads. You do pay us, you will, you will not see ads. Mm-hmm. And then to step back and realize we live in a world where it's kind of somewhere in between like you'll pay for cable, but you'll still get ads between yeah. shows. You'll buy a magazine, but somehow there are ads in between it. Like yeah. what what are we paying for? I do think that a little more freedom and in information and you're going to get people wondering what we are paying for. That I think that breaks down a little bit. Going back, because we've talked about magazines a bunch, that was the one thing that really pissed me off about uh, Nintendo Power, is that for the longest time it was ad-free, completely ad-free, you just pay your subscription and you get all the, the stuff that you want, all the cheat codes, all of the walkthroughs, whatever. And it was, I think, like 60 pages, maybe, on a, on a good volume, but when they started to introduce ads, it turned into like a fucking 120 pages. And it just turned into like every other spread that you flip is a full page ad. That is that sort of example in my mind that I see that advertising just sucks. And I wish it would go back to the day that it's almost like this movie that when you pay the subscription, you get the thing exactly what you subscribe for. So, I mean, how else could some of the advertising supported infrastructures we have today, things like the Facebooks of the world and and the Twitters, how could they transition themselves if they wanted to into a more woe business model? I think the the number one simple option is just to say, we'll give you the option to pay for this, and then we will give you exactly what you paid for, the content and the service, not the bullshit surrounding it. It's it is surprising to me, I guess, that some that that could be an option for many services, but it's not offered. I guess and not super surprising because you don't maybe don't want to create that dichotomy in in your network, but that seems like the easiest one. And that simplicity is there in something like the magazine. The magazine has a very, you know, simple business model. You give us the money, we give you the articles, and you read them on your device, and then it's it's all over. And it's it's amazing how revolutionary something that can be. And it's also amazing how like that was the norm until what, probably fifty years ago. And then like it used to be, you always knew exactly what your money was getting you. You go to the store, you buy, I don't know, some like hoop and a stick. You could knock down the street, and you give them the money. They give you the hoop and the stick, and you understood everything that was happening. And then advertising really took over our world in so many ways. I mean, taking over the media, which is what it did, really does take over everyone's experience of the world. So the fact that radio and television and broadcast and the web are all so full of advertising is, is a huge part of our existence and our experience of the world around us. Uh, and I wonder if maybe just advertising is just going, going the way of the, of the stick with the, uh, with the hoop you knock down the street. I think conversely about like app.net where you can only pay to be able to get into, you know, the club basically. Uh, so you have to pay money and thus you get to be a part of the social network where uh, I wonder if there was that, that option to be able to just have advertising and it be free that more people would actually join app, app.net. Well, yeah, I mean, I think app.net is a good example of how just simply charging for access is not the world business model. People were not, struck by app.net as soon as they paid their money and signed up Uh, i think that people that have done it have this sort of vision for what they want it to be but it's not that yet and it may never become that and so there's that's where i think there's a lot of sort of nuance to this is that the world business model is not simply charge for a thing and give it to somebody it's deliver on a promise that's made and deliver in a clear and succinct voice and when you do that 
then you can reasonably ask for money for it. Part of the woe is the fact that you're used to one thing and you get a different thing. I think that actually may be more to do with it than anything. It's kind yeah. of like dusting off the crap and realizing there's something great under here um, as opposed to just giving somebody something great. That's exciting, but you're not going to be as blown away as if you were used to it. <laughs> under under so much junk well i mean it's it's very similar to the other social networks we have and it's really the first social network that is something you pay for i mean that has a woe factor to it and maybe the woe factor is why so many people were willing to pay money for something that did not yet exist when it first sort of launched its you know crowdfunding platform i don't know i mean i think there there is a woe factor there i mean after that is a new thing it, it is something you would we expect social networks to be free and we expect them to occasionally be sprinkled with advertising that we're all just going to ignore and the woe of app.net should be that you pay and look, there's no ads here. But I don't think that uh, that was as successful as maybe they wanted it to be. But yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, do you, do you think that can exist without something being a bit too cluttered beforehand? If everything were just simple to begin with and we never got that far, no one would be saying woe about anything. You just get what you want. The biggest mantra of Apple retail is surprise and delight. And the mentality behind this is, I mean, there's this big convoluted thing that they use to describe it, but it's the idea that a customer asks a professional in their mind a question. And if you go to like Best Buy and you ask them a question, they go, oh, I don't know, uh, sorry. Then you're like, okay, well, I kind of expected that anyways. Got I didn't think that you would know the the answer to this particularly complex question. If you go to the Apple Store, the idea with surprise and delight is that I don't know, but let's discover together. They go ask you know other people in the store that work there uh, for technical expertise, or even try to go on a computer and and Google search for some of the answers. I think it's not many times just advertising. I think it's just the experience itself where you expected something and when somebody over delivers, that is like the, the woe factor that goes to my mind. So I, I think it that's part of it that can exist no matter what. I think it's a really good point. I mean, the unboxing of an Apple product and turning it on for the first time is a really considered experience and you buy another piece of electronics and it's like, well, I got to dig through the instruction manual and there's all this crappy foam padding. I got to pull out and throw packing peanuts all over the room before I can get to my thing. I think that's a really good example of how you can take that sort of impactful first response. You know, I mean, this is really sort of about first impressions almost of the thing you're making and being able to, you know, compress as much value and as much distill as much of the essence of the product into the very first impression someone's going to have with it. And that's how you get that well response. And I can see exactly where you're going, Matt, where uh, if that became the norm, then everything is just like, oh, okay, it's a very nice presentation, but that's just turned into something that, that everybody else has been doing because that is the main focus when they're trying to sell something to you. But yeah. I, I do feel like no matter what, there's always going to be those people who are making the products or delivering the products that want to constantly improve upon that if that was the benchmark. So if it was Apple, they are constantly trying to make the packaging that things are presented in uh, more simplified and uh, more compelling in everything. So I don't think that would stay stagnant much as advertising never stayed stagnant. They found more ways to advertise to you. So there was more opportunity for revenue or communication. So I, I, I just I can't believe that that sort of mentality would just stay flatlined. I guess it wouldn't flatline. It just it forces things to get better. Um, and I'm I'm just saying that uh, in in the example used of the movie theater, things are pretty bad. 
So yeah. it's pretty easy to make things better. And the only <laughs> woe is that things got almost back to zero. To a point, though, a lot of people will comment on things in movie theaters. Like if some, if a movie theater has really nice seats, people will compliment the really nice seats and actually tell a lot of their friends about it. Like, oh, go to this place instead of the other place across the uh, oh, yeah, there's the, the opportunity for that. No one I mean, writes a blog I, post about the nice seats in a movie theater, though. I mean, I think this is a very sort of different thing when it's a distinct... It's the, the movie seats are kind of peripheral to the experience. You know, I mean, Quentin Tarantino made a movie. The movie theater shows you the movie. And everything, like the food and the cleanliness of the bathrooms and the comfortableness of the seats are important. But they're not really the essence of their product, which is showing you this movie. I think that's mm-hmm. sort of what he's getting at here is like getting to the true essence of the experience people wanted. And, you know, he didn't even mention the, how comfortable the seat was he was sitting in because it wasn't really important to his experience, which was I sat down, the lights went down, and a movie came on, which was a really amazing thing. And then, Matt, your point that we're just sort of like getting back to zero is, I think, very poignant. I think we are getting back to zero. And it's amazing how much, how jaded we've become to all this crap that zero can be so meaningful to us. This has been On The Grid, episode 25. You can email the show, mail at onthegrid.co, call us, 973-ONGRID2, tweet links to hashtag onthegrid. If you want to submit a link for us to talk about in the show, onthegrid.reddit.com. If you enjoy the show, please review it on iTunes. Thanks to Girlfriends for the music. Thanks to you for listening. Until next week.